It's a powerful experience when we identify with the death of Christ. That guilt, that shame, that bondage gets buried. And then just as he rose from the dead, we rise in newness of life. There's some of us that have been Christians for some time and maybe have experienced water baptism that need to re-identify with his death. There's some things we've picked up in our Christian journeys. It's exemplified in Scripture. Peter's one of them. He picked up some stuff even after he met the resurrected Christ. Knew the love of Jesus in his heart. He still had some things to work through. You and I, we do as well. I want to encourage us to keep identifying with his death and his resurrection. I want to show you a couple pictures here. I don't know if you've had that experience, but I have as a boy. I've been the one pointing the finger, and I've been the one pointing the finger back at me and saying, who, me? Where little boys, little girls just start getting each other's grills and saying, you're my enemy. They might even say, I hate you. There's some things that are said when we're kids that we really shouldn't be said. Sometimes it's when we're adults and we're at work. And we just look at our coworker, and they're the enemy, and we just hate them. As Christians, we would never say that. But the hair stands up on the back of our necks when we're encountering them, when we're near them. And we may not throw a fist, but we'd like to at times. Or maybe you're here, and, and you've been to a ball game with one of your kids, and, and that referee just becomes the enemy because he didn't make the right call, even though he was right there. You from the sideline, 50 yards away, you saw exactly what happened. And your little boy, your little Sally, your little Johnny, he had the right. He was right. The other, place, the other player played, did the follow. And this rings a bell, too. For some reason, when we get in our cars, even as Christians, sons and daughters of the Most High... We get in our cars, and this car becomes a heavenly carriage, and every other car becomes the enemy. And we shake our fist, or maybe we let a few choice words out when no one but the Holy Spirit hears us inside the cab of our cars. Or maybe you've been in this situation with your spouse, and the one you're supposed to be one with, you're pointing the finger at, and they're an enemy. We learned yesterday from Pastors Paul and Cheryl. They did a conference for marriages. It was live streamed. It's recorded. It's on our Facebook page if you'd like to take a look at it. But one of the things they shared is that when we get mad at our, each other, when spouses get mad at each other, and it applies to all of us, when wherever we're mad at another person, there's something called adrenaline that increases in our system. Our heart rates accelerate, and it is not a good time to have an argument. Pastor's Paul, Pastor Paul's choice words were, that's a good time to shut up. Because the things that are coming out when we're in our flesh only add to the problem. Accentuate the hatred or any hostility that's between us. You might think I'm like this guy at times, <laughs> preaching, but I have news for you, so are you, 
when you're at your platform at home preaching to other people, maybe it's your son, maybe it's your daughter, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your family member, maybe it's your coworker, you're preaching at them because what they're doing is wrong and you're treating them like the enemy. Anytime that we pick up the pitchforks or the garden tools, we feel in our spirits to take up arms against anybody, we are calling that person an enemy. We got to be careful. The Word of God says, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Verse 8, Romans 5. In verse 10 of Romans 5, it says, sin is an enemy of God. You and I need to remember that all of us, each one of us, was an enemy of God, and he sent his only son to die for us. Why did he do that? Because he loves us. Last week, I shared with you the words of Jesus. The night he's betrayed, John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And if that's not enough, a little bit later in that farewell address, John chapter 15, verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's a big deal. He's not just saying love as a blanket statement that can be interpreted through our lens of whatever logic and reason we're using in the moment. He's talking about who he is. John tells us that God is love. And the best definition he could give us is sending his own son to die for us even though we were enemies. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Thank you, Jesus, that he loves us and that enables us to love him. We love him, verse 19 of 1 John 4, because he first loved us. I want to give you another qualifier for what it means to love like Jesus did. In Matthew 5 through 7, we read the great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon ever recorded in Scripture. And in verse 43, in the canon of Scripture... Canon means the measuring stick. It's a term they used in the early church. The measuring stick, the barometer for things that are instructed to us as followers of Christ. As disciples of Christ, we follow the word, the canon of Scripture. The first time that agape, the Greek word for love, the type of love that God himself has, the first time it's mentioned is verse 43 of Matthew 5, the great sermon. Jesus, instructing his disciples, instructing us, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's quoting from the old law, the Mosaic law. He's given us a new law, a new commandment. I say to you, love your enemies. And then he goes on 
to itemize what loving our enemies looks like. Love looks like this. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. In other words, pray for those who abuse you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his Son, the sun that's shining through, from above. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. This is a picture of Carlos Colon. He's a Puerto Rican man. Many years ago, a few decades ago, he immigrated to the United States. He went to Chicago. He didn't have a good upbringing. He became a gang member. Sold drugs. Became violent. And in one case, he murdered a man. He says this in his interview. I went to prison for murder. A gang retaliation murder. When... When, when, uh, when they do things, when do things, I can't, okay. they do, th- we do things to them, thank you, <laughs> I can't read. We do things to them and they do things to us. This is not my vernacular, if you didn't notice, I'm not a gangbanger. <laughs> he says, I had no remorse in that murder. This is a picture of Nelson Vargas, another Puerto Rican man who also did not have a good upbringing and he became a leader of a gang and a pretty high up gang member, a leader, selling lots of drugs. He came to know Jesus in a supernatural way and shortly after he knew Jesus, he stopped selling drugs. Jesus changed his heart. He took some of that guilt that he'd been living under, the heaviness he'd been living under, and set him free. The correct rendering of that in John is made us free. Right, Brother Jim? Amen. Jesus made him free. He's at his house. Nelson is at his house. He's putting all the drug paraphernalia together. He's going to destroy it. His son, his oldest son, comes into the house and says, Dad, I want the stuff. I want the scales. I want the things that I can sell drugs because I have a deal I'm about to broker. Nelson pleads with his son, no. Can't you see I've led you in the wrong way? Jesus has changed my life. I don't want to do this. You should not do this. I don't want you to go. His son forcibly rips the stuff from him and goes out and tries to make a deal within minutes. Nelson's wife comes in and says, your son has just been shot five times and he's dead. Nelson is challenged as a young Christian and he says this. He's describing what he, in his opinion, feels are the words of Satan to him. Now that your son is dead, you are hiding behind Jesus. You're not going to do nothing about it because you're a coward. 
He's feeling this anger, this hatred rise up inside him to his, toward his son's murderer. He falls onto his knees after he rips up some things, as you might understand. <laughs> Tears up the house. The word of God tells us in verse 15 of Romans 12, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus pours out tears from heaven. He also pours out smiles and joy. He knows what we're going through. If you're here today and you're dealing with a situation that's extremely, extremely grieving, I want you to know that our heart is to weep with you and grieve with you in a holy way, but in a hopeful way, right? Our hope does not disappoint if it's in Christ because his love is poured out in our hearts, and that's a love that never fails. Nelson is on his knees. He's dealing with this temptation to take up a gun and go out and kill this guy that's just killed his son. He hears the pages of his Bible turning, and he looks over. There's no wind. There's nothing in the house. Just the, supernaturally, the pages of his Bible turning. He goes over, and he finds Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37, which says this, He who loves a son more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he instantly falls under conviction by the Holy Spirit. And he realizes that God himself, the Father in heaven, gave his own son for him while Nelson himself was an enemy. And he's filled with overwhelming gratitude. And he forgives in that moment whoever the murderer might be. If you haven't guessed it, this guy was the murderer. He goes to prison for 10 years before he starts to feel remorse. And at the 10-year mark, he meets Jesus, and he says this, Lord, I would love for you to restore that which the enemy has broken. One Puerto Rican and another Puerto Rican on, in different gangs fighting each other. That is a picture, one picture of brokenness. He wanted it restored because of that which Jesus put in his heart. When we have the love of Jesus, we want each other. We want to be together. We love each other. I just wanted forgiveness, he said. He got out of prison after serving his full term at 20 years. And this is a picture of both men hugging each other in tears. Nelson became a pastor and is now Carlos's pastor. In this moment that they embrace each other, Pastor Nelson is telling Carlos, Carlos is saying to him, I'm sorry, I'm sorry about your son, I'm sorry. Nelson is telling him, you're my son. You're my son now. It's a picture of full reconciliation. Most of us, probably none of us, have gone through this type of situation. But are there ways in our hearts, in our minds, that we're partnering with the enemy and looking at each other or looking at people outside these four walls as enemies 
When God is saying, I sent my son to die for them, I love them. First, we should know, I love you. It's a first-person understanding. I receive the love of Jesus. And without it, I cannot look at other people the way I should. One of the common ways, I prayed about this. I'm going to be honest with you. I prayed about this because this steps on toes, what I'm about to say. But the Holy Spirit, in truth, and pouring over his word, this is a canon, the word of God. Not my computer, but the word of God. It's the measuring stick by which we operate as sons and daughters of God. It's not by my feelings, my fears, my sadnesses, my emotions, things that God gave me to be surrendered to him, to operate from a holy platform with him on the throne of my heart, not my emotions running the show. Some of us have an issue with putting our families on a pedestal too high. It is the reason why I use this example. In a moment, I'll share another example with you. We laughed at the picture of the soccer game. It's funny, right? <laughs> Probably it's funny because all jokes resonate with an element of truth. Where we're setting aside our righteousness, which was paid at a loving and precious price by Jesus Christ, and we're pointing the finger at someone that's just trying to do their job at a game. Maybe they're like us and they have an agenda. Hello? They might. But Jesus inside of you and Jesus inside of me is a loving Jesus. He's not saying it's okay to have an agenda that's not of his. But he is saying to love through it just as I love you. In the canon of Scripture, Matthew 5, verse 43, is the first mention of love. But in chronicle Scripture, what Jesus said, as recorded in John chapter 3, was mentioned in the first year of Jesus' ministry, before the Sermon on the Mount. For God so loved the world, say it with me, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, brothers and sisters. When we're pointing the fingers, we got to be careful because we're taking the place of he who has the true judgeship. He judges the living and the dead, Jesus Christ himself. He is inside of us, but he has not given us the power to judge in a fleshy way. He's given us the power to judge righteously. This is right and this is wrong. And one of the things he's saying was wrong is when we point the finger at each other and say you're not worthy. Hello, church. 
If someone lays a hand on my son Danny, if someone lays a hand on my son Davy, and I use those terms as affection, and I call him Bubba, my flesh and blood, it does not give me a license to throw out and jettison the love of Jesus Christ. It's a love that goes beyond. We need to have an understanding of the hurt and the pain that God the Father felt and went through when his only son died on the cross innocently. He watched him beaten. He watched him filleted open alive. They're pulling his skin off. They're smashing a crown of thorns in his head. Father in heaven is watching the whole scene. It's a picture of perfect love. In Christianese, we call it agape. We call it unconditional love. No matter what, I love you. Even when you're in your sin. Even when your sins are beating my son. And putting nails in his hands and feet. And laughing at him. My sin. Laughing at him as he suffocates on the cross. Let it resonate in our hearts in the name of Jesus. John's is the only gospel that details the name of the guard that Peter looked at as an enemy. The night Jesus betrayed, Peter whips out his sword. He cuts off the ear of Malchus. John's is the only gospel that talks about the encounter in the last chapter, chapter 21, where Jesus comes and meets Peter who's used to treating enemies like enemies. And he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Every time he's asking him, it's agape, except the last time when he says phileo, a friendship love that follows agape. You are my friends if you do what I command you, and what I command you is to love with agape. If you didn't follow that, you can just listen to it on the recording. My point is this. Peter has an encounter with Jesus Christ in a real way that changes and flips the script. In chapter 21 of John, Jesus prophesies over him, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. There's a few historians, Tertullian and Origen among them, Eusebius is another, that corroborate that Peter actually died on a cross. And because he didn't feel worthy of the Savior, they flipped the cross at his request, and he died upside down. Something was happening in Peter that revolutionized his heart. He was beginning to realize that the same sun that rose on him was the same sun in the sky that rose on his enemies. When Jesus was on the cross, Peter was now beginning to see there were enemies around him. And before he gave up his last breath, Jesus on the cross, before the sky went dark, there was a sun out. It's a picture, I believe, prophetic 
in the Beatitudes and in the sermon that follows, Matthew 5, verse 43, when, verse 43 through 46, when he says, the sun will rise on the evil and on the good, the rain will pour out on the same. It's a picture of the cross. This is a picture of John and Joy Kaviri, pastors in North Carolina. About 30 years ago, I was sitting across the table from them. Young guy. And they were telling the story about how a guy broke into their house. John had gone off to work. He was a pastor at the time. This perpetrator broke into their house. Joy was pregnant at the time, and she had a little girl sleeping in the back room, her oldest. And this perpetrator didn't just steal. He proceeded to violate Joy, and I believe you know what I mean. And Joy, because of a love for what God was doing in her womb and a love for her daughter that was already born, had the grace of God to not fight. She was violated. A few weeks after that, John was at prison. hugging the man who had done this to his wife and saying, Jesus loves you and I do too and I forgive you. Do you see the happiness in her 30 years from now? Oh. She, loves, she loves people. The joy of the Lord is her strength. It's no accident that her name is Joy. John, completely free of the bitterness of unforgiveness. In Matthew 19, Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus says, You're going to have a reward. But only after he says this, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. I hope you can appreciate how difficult this is to preach. My canon is not my emotion. My canon is the scripture. The scripture tells us in Ephesians 4 the reason pastors and preachers are given. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up or edification of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ, that means his love.
Peter says this in his first epistle. He's writing to a, many people throughout Asia Minor, and they're in persecution, and they're on the verge of burgeoning persecution. This is part of my equipping. This is part of what I'm sensing in this time. We are a promised land. We see the problems around us. We're a promised land. We're praying in earnest for his kingdom to come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this earth as it is in heaven. But that doesn't mean we're going to escape hardship. I would completely miss the loving heart of God if I did not deliver this message. Some of us have already been called to task. I know some of you in, this, in our midst, and this is a hard message to hear because you're living, putting your family second right now. And I should probably check what I just said because it's not about putting family second. It's about putting God first. Nowhere in the passages of Scripture does it say wife is second and children are third. Nowhere. It just says don't have idols. It also says we're supposed to love our wives as ourselves and we're not to provoke our children unto wrath. We're supposed to raise them up into the Lord and the discipline of the Lord. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. It's not talking about abuse. It's talking about proper, godly, loving discipline and truth. There's passages we can point to, but nowhere in Scripture does it say, my wife is second and I love her dearly. I'd lay my life down for her and she knows it and I have. My children come third. I love them dearly. I'd lay my life down for them. It's God first. And that causes me to go places that nowhere outside these four walls if it's a true church of Christ. Or when we're outside the four walls as his body of Christ. Nowhere in the world, let me say it that way, nowhere in the world steps into that. If they do, it's absent of love. And it's just a clanging symbol. It's just empty prophecy that fails, 1 Corinthians 13. But when we have the love of God, we treat others as family. Everybody is a co-heir with Christ who comes in by remission of sins made only possible through Jesus Christ, comes into the family. Let me release a prophetic word. I'm just going to take a gentle offshoot here. This is for our young people and for our singles. This is another one that's hard to deliver because it can come across as so religious and so ritualistic, so old school. But I want to encourage you, the living word of God says in many passages, that sexual immorality is counter to the kingdom of God. Those who commit it will not inherit the kingdom of God. True love prefers the other person, not just what he can do for me, not just what she can do for me, but what I can do that for them. I esteem them better than myself. It is a definition of agape love, preferen preferentially preferring my brother and my sister, not taking advantage. Some of us 
will be married. And God bless marriage. He ordained marriage. Some of us, many of us are married, but I'm talking to the singles. Some of us will be married, maybe in the near future. One of the things that you common, commonly hear that should not be, I do not believe should be in the church of God, is he makes me happy. She makes me happy. Because it's centered on selfishness. And the love of Jesus is centered on selflessness. And I won't go into a sermon based on what we heard yesterday, although I could. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. The love of Jesus prefers our brides-to-be men, prefers our grooms-to-be women, and does not take advantage. Love like Jesus did and prefer each other. As you stand to your feet and make ready for communion, I want you to ask yourself this question. Will I love like Jesus? Peter wrote these words in his first epistle. If I didn't show it to you, oh, I already showed you. Yeah. Will I love like Jesus? Bless those who curse me or my family, do good to those who curse me or hate me and my family, pray for those who abuse me or my family. And I put that in there specifically because this is a bar that I believe Jesus is calling us to, to be examples of loving our family like the world cannot love our family. And I'm talking about nuclear families. I'm talking about extended biological families but not to the degree that it overtakes forgiveness and love for others that hurt my family. Am I being clear? It's a big deal. Remember what Jesus said, if we love like he does, it's a testimony to the world. I can't do it without grace. You can't either. When we partake in remembrance, the Eucharist, thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord, this was the high water mark of the early church. This was, this was something that they, they did this is where they encountered Jesus Christ. And I just want to honor those that have come from Catholic tradition. I may not see all the doctrines that you see. I may not agree with all the doctrines that you see, but I want to honor the high place that the Catholic Church has put on communion. It is a place that the scripture, the canon, tells us to come to his table with reverence. He says, this is his body, broken for us. Eat it and do it as you eat. Remember, it's in remembrance of me. And so, Father, as we partake of your son's body, 
his body broken for us. We ask that your grace would be poured into our hearts so that we could love just as you did when you broke your body for us. I want to give you a minute to pause and in reverence before Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's anything that you need to repent of. If you've found yourself crossing the line into the flesh and defending your spouse and defending your children, idolizing them in some other way, if you found yourself committing sins repeatedly, partaking of the Lord's body is not just supposed to be a ritual, some type of thing we go through. It's supposed to be an encounter with him. He designed this is his body. I want you to just repent if, you, if it's you. Gently ask you to do it. And expect to receive his grace as we, as we partake. If you're ready, let's partake together. He said this is the, this wine and this is grape juice, fruit of the vine. He drank wine and he said, it is the new covenant of my blood. The new covenant of his blood is a demonstration and a power, a demonstration of power of his love for us. It's the new commandment, it's the new covenant that we're supposed to be in loving each other. We cannot do it alone, saints of God. But as we partake, Holy Spirit, we invite your grace to enable us to overcome sin and live in truth. Thank you, Jesus, for pouring out your blood for us. We partake together in communion with you. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> I want you to be careful with your elements. As much as we think we know about communion, I don't think we know as much about communion, whatever doctrine we have, as we do know that we should love each other. And increasingly, we have people that come from a tradition in our house that take this very seriously. We're not spilling it. We're not discarding it in a careless way. But out of love for our brothers and sisters that come from a high view of communion, we're taking care of it carefully. <clears throat> There's some good days coming for us. <clears throat> But there's also some problems. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, that in me you may have peace. Thank you, Jesus, for the peace. But in this world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome 
the world. If you would like prayer, please come forward. would love to pray for you.